All right, book of Jeremiah. Book of Jeremiah. On Wednesday, I covered chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, and chapter 17. I spent, what, two, almost three hours working on chapter 14 and 17 on Wednesday. So what we're going to do is we're just going to do kind of just, I'm going to use a Bible handbook to give kind of a basic summary of 14, 15, 16, we'll read uh, some things in 16, we'll read uh, a section of 17, but the focus today is chapter 18, hopefully in the first hour, I don't think we'll get to 19 in the second hour, but hopefully it would be great if we could get 18 and 19 done, and then tonight, if possible, chapter 20, that's the, that's the plan, we'll see, um, but we, we, we're, we're covering as much as we can, and hopefully we will so if you, if you missed all of that, I'm not going to go back and ask any review questions or anything like that, but let's do this. According to, this is the way Haley's Bible Handbook summarizes chapter 14 and 15, all right? Jeremiah chapter 14 and 15, uh, a prolonged drought had stripped the land of food. Jeremiah's heart ached at seeing the people suffer, even though they hated, ridiculed, and mocked him. His intercession before God is as near an approach to the Spirit of Christ as to be found anywhere in the Old Testament, right? Obviously, there's a lot we could talk about the, the, those, that section, but we'll move on. Chapter 16. In some cases, the domestic life of the prophets was used to reinforce the message they preached. Isaiah and Hosea were married and gave their children names that expressed their main messages. Jeremiah was commanded to remain single as a kind of symbolic backdrop to his persistent predictions of impending bloody slaughter. What is the use of raising a family just to be butchered uh, in the frightful carnage about to be loosened upon the inhabitants of Judah? Again, God promises restoration. Now we know, obviously, chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter, there's been prediction of judgment, 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 judgment. At times it's been extremely severe. At times it sounds very frightening. It's going to be slaughtered. There's going to be death. They're going to be carried away. So we definitely have that message down that's been repeated over and over and over throughout the entire book. All right. So that then presents the reader, that presents the Bible student, then, okay, we know the problem presented in the book. Judah's in sin, Israel's in sin. We know judgment is coming, and that seems absolutely certain, right? So then what's the solution to their problem? Well, over and over in the book, it appears that the solution to the problem is that they just stop doing wrong, and then they start doing right. Or we could put the word repentance, right? Okay, we can put the word repentance down. Whether it's, you know, then we can get the whole discussion of change mind, change behavior. I know we can get to that whole discussion. But all of this presents theological problems, right? Because wait a minute, God knows they're going into captivity, right? Then all the telling them to do this or do that or do this really becomes ultimately irrelevant because they're not going to and God knows they're going into judgment. And, and then this raises the biggest question, and we're going to see this again. Can they repent? Can they repent? Now, depending on your theology, because if we say God grants repentance, 
then they can't, correct? And if they can't, so they're going to be slaughtered because they can't do something that they can't do. Does everyone understand how utterly philosophically troubling that should be? I know, I know it's not the way this is presented. The way it's typically presented is they're in sin, don't live like Judah, or will be judged, right? That's how it's typically preached. So stop doing bad things, everyone. And then everyone in church says, Amen, and we walk out the door basically doing exactly what we're told not to do, and in many cases being just as unfaithful to God as Judah was. And nobody ever stops to go, well, I don't understand, right? So, but I think it's a question that has to be, we have to struggle with over and over and over. If God's telling them to repent and they can't repent, because this comes down to a, a basic theological question, can man repent on their own? And if the answer is yes, then our, our, then it's something we do, then that makes our relationship with God based off our works, right? That's a major problem, yes? If it's something we can't do, then everybody's like, oh, what a great answer because it's all dependent on God's sovereignty. Well, that's wonderful until you step into the pages of a book like Jeremiah because now this, this, theological, this theological idea that's all great, maybe from an academic perspective, sitting here and we're talking about, no, God is sovereign. He's the one who grants repentance. We can all say amen to that. But when you step into the pages where here are real people, real families who are going to be slaughtered, their bodies are going to be thrown across the land like dung, as the, as the past passages have said, all of a sudden it becomes a little bit more, not so just a theoretical idea, not just an academic concept. Now it becomes extremely troubling to anyone. And you should be able to see why many skeptics or atheists or agnostic would be like, your book is absolutely messed up. And I don't have a good answer for it. Because you see, everyone understands the problem, right? God says, repent. They can't. Because you don't, I'm going to kill everyone and throw your bodies like dung. Well, then what, the, the obvious answer would be, well, then just grant them repentance. And then the whole problem is solved. Oh, you could also get rid of the false prophets. You could, I mean, there's a million things he could do here, right? But he doesn't do any of them. And, and we're going to see, again, another situation here. In chapter 16. So all of this, you know, hey, all these people are going to be slaughtered. So Jeremiah, don't even bother getting married. And look at chapter 16. And you'll notice in verse, I think, verse 14. Chapter 16, verse 14. In the midst of this complexity that doesn't seem to make any logical sense to anyone, right? It doesn't make any sense. And, and, and I know, and well, depending on your theological background, this is where some would say, well, that's why you, you have to believe people can repent. And I, um, that's wonderful you believe that, but then you create a workspace system, which is a, a whole different theological issue. But in chapter 16, look at verse 14. Uh, it says, therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said, the Lord liveth up. Let me read this again. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said, the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands 
whether he had driven them and I will bring them up again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. Now, in the midst of this very confusing, like, well, wait a minute, I don't understand. There is once again a promise of what? Of restoration. Now, we don't know, is this, rest, is this restoration completely fulfilled in coming out of Babylonian captivity? We don't know. Even if it is, the land that they get when they come out of Babylonian captivity, we know they do not keep. So then, is this really the, the fulfillment of it? We don't know. But it's another, once again, it's another promise. It's another promise. All right? And then, well, there's, there's more we could read here. But we'll go to chapter 17. We'll go to chapter 17. And in here, Jeremiah chapter 17, according to Haley's Bible handbook, they say this, Judah's downfall is inevitable. So once again, it's, it's like it's a guarantee they're, they're going to fall. Yet, the promise is held before them again and again. There's a promise held to them. Now, look, just go to chapter 17. I'll just show you a little bit of this. Go to verse 13. We'll try to quickly wrap up chapter 17. It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Once again, remember, was it chapter 14? There was a drought. This idea of, you know, them digging out their own wells, they're leaving the, the, the fountain of living water. This kind of imagery has shown up over and over and over. Verse 14, heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, I shall be saved, for thou art my praise. Behold, they say unto me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. As for me, I have not hastened from being a pastor to follow thee. Neither have I desired the woeful day. Thou knowest that which came out of my lips was right before thee. Be not a terror unto me. Thou art my hope in the day of evil. Let them be confounded that persecute me, but let not me be confounded. Let them be dismayed, but let not me be dismayed. Bring upon them the day of evil and destroy them with double destruction. Now, I just, I think it's funny because earlier Haley's uh, handbook was like, but there's these times where Jeremiah, he, he shows the spirit of Christ, okay? Here he's like, destroy them, okay, get rid of, and he's done that before. I think what we see, this is very important, I think what we see here is we see the humanity of Jeremiah over and over and over, right? Sometimes he gets it, sometimes he's compassionate, sometimes he's merciful, and sometimes he wants what to happen to the people. Just get them all, get rid of them all. Okay, yeah, in the worst possible way. I mean, and, and, and again, just remember, this is very important. Whenever we, and this is probably a key hermeneutical principle in the Old Testament, but it even shows up in the New Testament. Time and time again, when it describes attitudes or actions of people in the Bible, that does not always mean it's prescriptive. Sometimes it is simply descriptive. It's just describing the reality. It's not making a judgment whether the action or attitude is right or whether the attitude or action is wrong. It's just telling you what was and you, we can make your own judgment. Should Jeremiah be so upset that he wants the people to be destroyed in the worst possible way? Now, in some ways you can understand it from a human perspective, right? From a spiritual perspective, you could ask, well, is this right or is this wrong? But then look what happens. 
Look at verse 19. Thus saith the Lord unto me, go and stand in the gate. God doesn't seem too worried about his, his emotional issues, does he? He's like, okay, you're, you're good. Now, hey, I need you to go, go and stand in the gate of the children of the people, whereby the kings of Judah come in, and by which they go out, and all the gates of Jerusalem. And say unto them, hear ye the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah, and all of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem that enter in by these gates. He's got another message, all right? What's this message going to be? Look at verse 21. Thus saith the Lord, take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. Now let's stop right here. Okay, all of a sudden, and I don't think we've seen this necessarily in in the 16 chapters that have come before this, but all of a sudden there seems to be a new solution offered. Right? Hey, you keep messing up. Judgment's going to come upon you. You're going to be destroyed. Even Jeremiah is ticked off at you, okay? Everyone wants you dead, okay? But, 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 here's what I need you to do. If we were to paraphrase it, what does he want them to do? Keep the Sabbath. Obey the Sabbath. Now, once again, I, I struggle with this so much. Because the solution to their problem, once again, is pointed out to be what? It's works. It's law. In fact, it's very much law, is it not? I mean, that's right there from the Ten Commandments, right? Keep the Sabbath, right? So you're like, what? Right back to law, right? Back to Why does he keep giving them law as a solution? Are they ever going to keep it? No, we know that. They're never going to keep it. In fact, just watch how this plays out. Verse 22. Neither carry forth a burden out of your house on the Sabbath day, neither do ye any work, but hallow ye the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. But they... So, again, this is the same thing we see over and over and over again. So let's state this over and over. How had Israel done in the past? Failed. How were they doing in the present at the times of any of the prophets? Failing, right? And what were they going to do in the future? Fail. Like any good Bible student should be like, this law thing isn't working. Now the fact that the law thing isn't working seems to be supported in the New Testament, right? Which seems to say that the law does what? It reveals sin and it incites sin. It doesn't correct it. I know that goes counter, that goes against, on one hand, it makes no sense because then you would say, God, could you just stop giving them instructions? It's not working. Now, later on, we're going to find out that God's going to make a new covenant. And why is he going to make a new covenant? Because they kept disobeying the old covenant. And the new covenant seems to be based on what God will do for them, not what they will do for God. That, That seems to be the only hope. But you would hope that they would have instituted that God could have instituted that covenant, I don't know. Way back. I mean, think about, I mean, think, think about this. How many people in Israel under the old covenant had to die in some type of judgment? If you started adding up numbers. Well, yeah, but in the meantime, all these people die, okay? I mean, that's like, hey, well, the Gentiles get a chance, but look, how, just think about how many people died. You have an entire generation die off coming out of, you know, Egypt, right? 
all, and even wandering around the wilderness, you had you know, snakes come in, you had all the different things happen. And then all the judgment that, who knows how many people died in the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity. It's just, and then not only that, how many people died in 70 AD? Right? Six million Jews died in World War II. Like you would think, I don't know, man, man, could you possibly institute this a little bit earlier and stop all it? It's it just so maddening, right? Well, what happens? Okay, so it's far, look at, but they obeyed not. Verse 23, neither inclined their ears, but made their neck, neck stiff, that they might may not hear nor receive instruction. Verse 24, and it shall come to pass. Here's the word. If you can circle that, if, if. Ye diligently hearken unto me, saith the Lord, to bring in no burden through the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but how will the Sabbath day to no work therein? Then, there's another then. This is all what? What is this all? Conditional, 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 but we can say it. It's law, 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 law. But what happens here? Now here comes a promise. Then shall they enter into the gates of this city, kings and princes sitting upon the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and the princes, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever. And they shall come from the cities of Judah and from the uh, places about uh, Jerusalem and from the land of Benjamin and from the plain and from the mountains and from the south bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices and meat offerings and incense and to bring sacrifices of praise unto the house of the Lord. But if you will not hearken unto me to hallow the Sabbath day and not to bear a burden, even entering in at the gate of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, they will, I kindle a fire in the gates thereof, and I and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. It's law, 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 law. Now we know this clearly, and just think about this logically, clearly, it, whatever this promise is, do they meet the requirements for said promise? No, because even if you say, well, they must have met it because they came out of Babylonian captivity, we know they don't meet it because then what happens in 70 AD? Destroyed. So clearly, and we're, we're in 19, we're, 1948, they come back as a nation, but we're in 2023, do they still, do they have a temple? No. Do they can even control the Temple Mount? No. There's a mosque sitting there, Right? They only control a section of the city. They don't even have that. Do they have the land? No. Are people pouring into Jerusalem with sacrifice? None of it is there. So then you see where in church history, there's been a struggle, right? They're like, well, what do we do with this? But the sad part is, this is the dangerous part. If you somehow just throw Israel out of this, then you have to say, well, Israel's entire relationship with God was law-based. And literally, they failed under the law, and then they were replaced. But then that seems to go against the promises made to Abraham because he seemed to make a covenant with them that's based off grace, not off works. 
and then, and then all those other promises, the whole thing falls apart. But it's just, the whole situation is just horrible, right? So that's, that's chapter 17. Now we come to chapter 18. Now we come to chapter 18. Oh boy. All right, here we go. Now I'm going to utilize 418. I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to smack myself and I'm going to try, I'm going to try my best to use the study guide. Now the last time we tried, we made it one paragraph and then we left for two hours. Okay. And we never made it even really back to the study guide, but we're going to try. The only reason I'm going to try is, is for, to keep, to try to make us move forward. But you know, at any point I'll do what? I'm going to divert if we need to or if we want to. So here we go. But I'm going to start with how, I always like seeing how they start uh, uh, one of their sections, all right, and how they approach it, okay? So they, their picture here, they have a gentleman sitting at, a, it looks like a conference table. He's speaking. You can see everybody's notes. Maybe, uh, maybe it's supposed to be a Bible study. I don't know, but he's sitting there speaking, all right? Then uh, this section or this session is called Shapes. I have no idea why it's called Shapes, but okay. Then it says this, God is in control, shaping his people for his purposes. Now, do you want to say amen there or do you want to go, do what? What do you want to say there? God is in control, shaping his people for his purposes. What do you do? Does everybody love that? Does that make you go amen and you get in your little small group and you hold hands and sing a song and have a snack after? Okay, well, if God is it, well, you've read 17 chapters of Jeremiah. Hopefully, you've read at least 17 chapters of Jeremiah. At this point, what are you thinking? If, if I tell you, okay, well, there you go. If I hand the Bible to any just, I don't know, we go on any university campus and we hand it to any smart college student and say, I want you to read these 17 chapters. And after you read these 17 chapters, I look at you and say, God is in control. And he's shaping his people for his purpose. How do you think any smart college student would respond to that statement after reading those 17 chapters of Jeremiah? Well, one, if he's in control, then why is he so upset? Right, and if he's the one doing the shaping, couldn't he just shape them for something better than slaughter? I mean, these, I, I just don't understand how preachers preach this book and everybody in, in churches just go, amen, with a smile on their face. I don't get it. This is the most disturbing, twisted, I don't understand it thing that you can read. It's like death and death. When you tell people, hey, your bodies are going to basically be thrown across the land like dung, I'm sorry, that's disturbing. And the reason it's going to happen is because you're not doing what I tell you, but like, you know, I'm in control and I'm shaping you. Well, then shape me into a place where I won't be thrown as dung across the land. Wouldn't that be a good, wouldn't that just be a good start? So already I'm, I'm just like, all right, but then they have this paragraph because they always got to try to make it practical, you know, for the little small group or whatever you're doing. Here we go. Most of us have been in situations where we have witnessed poor leadership and thought things would be better if we were in control. We would have to admit, however, that in the situations where 
it, that in the situations where we were in control, things didn't always turn out the way we hoped. The fact is, we are never in complete control of everything in our lives. The only one who is in complete control of everything is God. And he is working out all things according to his good pleasure, which includes shaping people for his purpose. Now, anyone reading that in small groups should go, ah! and drop it and say, this is more scarier than the Satanic Bible. Why would that should scare you? I mean, if people want to ban books in libraries, you may want to start right here. Why is that frightening? Exactly. There's no other way to get around it. If you're going to say God is in control and he is shaping people for his purpose, then he's obviously shaping a lot of people in this time to be dung thrown across the earth. That should disturb you. Now, is there anything in the New Testament that sounds something like this that should be disturbing? Yeah, where is that in the book of Romans? That, sh- that section of Romans that creates nothing but controversy in the history of Christianity. Yeah, yeah find it. Let's find it. I told you we're going to read one paragraph and end up off on... It's Josh's fault. I, I, it's not my fault. I just try to read it. See if who can find it. It's a section everyone has to deal with. Nobody wants to deal with it, but we have to. And I don't have a good answer here. See who can find it first. Who can find it first? All right. My internet says. (laughs) Romans chapter 9. All right. Let's see where we want to go. How far back do we want to go? How far back? You know what? Let's just start in chapter, chapter 9, verse 1. All right? we, this may mess up the entire study, but this is worth it, okay? This is worth it because this create. I mean, I, you should. I, I mean, if you've been reading Jeremiah, one of the things I've been waiting for is I've been waiting for a lot of emails from people going, this whole thing is so confusing to me. If God is in control, then what, what's happening here? Chapter 9 in Romans at least picks it up from a New Testament perspective. Let's see what happens, all right? Chapter 9, verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, this is good for us, right? Why is verse 3 good for us in our current study? Because who is he referenced in verse 3? He's referencing Israel. Okay, good. And he knows, look, if I could, I I would be accursed so that they don't have to. Basically, Paul is saying, look, if if I could figure this out, I would go to hell so they don't have to go to hell, which is a crazy concept that he could even, you know, say that. It's it's easier to say. It's a different thing to mean, right? right, Verse 4. Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the services of God and the promises? Now, that right there lays out all the blessings and and great things that Israel got. That's a lot of good things, right? Adoption, glory, covenants, law. 
So, now, I guess the law may not be such a good thing, because that's a whole different subject, right? And uh, the service of God and the promises. Whose are the fathers and of, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is uh, overall God blessed forever. Amen. Verse 6. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for there are not all Israel which are Israel. Now, this is what creates the whole concept of spiritual Israel and trying to figure it all out, okay? And again, the reason, I want to make sure we understand, the reason there's all these different ideas and, and all of these trying to come up with solutions is because of the complexity of the entire thing. I understand that this, it's massively confusing, right? But let's, let's see what happens here. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promises are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise, at the time I will come and Sarah sh- shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by her father Isaac. For the children, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, but that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. Now, immediately, we're getting ready to, something's getting ready to be introduced here, right? He's, he's kind of drawing a distinction. Hey, in some ways, not all Israel's Israel. Right? He's kind of drawing a distinction. And what's going to be the distinguishing mark here? I just read it in that verse. Election. Not according to works. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Anyone reading that should be so bothered, right? So then you're immediate. what's your immediately answer for that if you read that to some people? Well, Jacob must be the really good guy and Esau must be really a bad guy. The only problem with that, if you go back before, it just says a not according to works. So it's not according to what they do. It's according to election. So based off election, God loved and hated. <laughs> Is that not concerning to anybody? Next verse. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Now, why would he say, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Because anyone reading this at this point is going to say, that's not right. Especially if you know the story. (laughs) Jacob is not a great guy, right? If you know the story, you're like, uh, your God is messed up. Like that literally is what someone could say. All right. Now what happens next verse? Well, at the end of that, he says, God forbid, for he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Meaning that mercy and compassion is dependent upon what? God's sovereign choice, not according to works. Is anybody like that? Well, in some ways, I love it. Some ways, I love it. Because if God is going to have mercy or compassion on me, it's not going to be based off what I do or don't do. 
But on other situations, you're kind of like, why? Now, you could argue, well, he doesn't have to show mercy or compassion on anyone. But that's still, and I know that makes some people feel better, right? Some people in the pew will be like, well, you're right. Since no one deserves it, okay, then it's just great that he gives it to somebody. But remember, why does no one deserve it? Because we're all sinners, right? How did we all become sinners? By the fall. Who created the situation that allowed the fall to happen? Before he created anyone, did he know the fall was going to happen? So you can say, well, hey, none of us deserves mercy, so it's great that God would show mercy to anyone. But he created the entire situation where nobody would deserve mercy. That is messed up. That, I, there's no way to get around that from a human perspective. Uh, you can't look at that and go, well, I feel so much better, right? I, I, I don't, I don't, that, 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 I, that, oh, right? It'd be like you, as a parent, you create a situation knowing that every one of your children are going to be guilty. You create the situation. You even bring in the person that's going to tempt them. You know they're all going to fall. You know they're all going to fall. And then when they're all there, you bring them into the room and go, all right, guys, you're all in trouble. None of you deserve mercy, but I'm going to pick two of you and you get mercy. The rest of you get punished. Well, you create the situation in the first place. Now, if you heard a story about parents doing that, how would you feel? Okay, let's just be, yeah, let's just be honest. I would have a hard time going, uh, that just seems so wrong. That just seems so wrong. All right, let, 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 what happens here? All right. Moses said, I will have mercy in whom I will have mercy, compassion in whom I will have compassion. Verse 16, so then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God showeth mercy. Immediately, then verse 16 tells us what? Has nothing to to do with what? What we do. Has nothing to do with what we do. Running or willing is not going to change it. Now, take that back to Jeremiah. You see how frustrating then, then the whole story becomes? God keeps telling them to do something. But right here says it's not going to be based off what they do. Next verse. For scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for the same purpose have I raised thee up that I might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared through all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he... Oh, no, wait, no, 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 no. Okay, now it's getting confusing. No, this can't be. Okay, all right. So Pharaoh was brought forth for the simple purpose of hardening. And for other people, they were brought forth so that God would show mercy. So then all the times we read in Jeremiah of the people having a stiff neck and hardened their hearts... Who's doing it? So that that creates a major issue, right? Now, some people will say, well, no, Pharaoh hardened himself, and then God hardened that. That still doesn't, at first, that doesn't even make any sense because Pharaoh was born with a sinful nature, so he was already, like, 
I don't know how, how people try to get around these things. And I know why you try to get around it, because at this point you're getting uncomfortable, right? Nobody likes to hear this stuff. But I, I didn't write it. It's not my fault it's here that we have to talk about it, right? Okay. Next verse. Thou will say unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Now, why would, he, why would he, Paul mention this possible objection? Because he knows what anyone's going to say. Well, wait a minute. If God's doing the hardening, then how he, can he find fault with anyone? Does Paul offer a solution? What's his solution? Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? That's not a good answer. Does anybody like that answer? What's the answer? Someone paraphrase the answer. Summarize the answer for me. Well, I mean, that's kind of what he's saying. If you don't like it, go, go do what you want. I Go create your own universe and do what you want. I do agree that that's, that's, that's the answer, but doesn't the, is the answer satisfying? He doesn't say, no, 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 no. Look, 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 look. I'm not the one hardening you. I'm not the one. No, 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 no. You, you're, he doesn't, does he come in to say, no, you're doing this. He just says, if God wants to harden you, who are you to complain about it? I don't know. I, I may have some complaints. I don't do. Does anybody else have complaints? Now you you see how far this can. How far do you take this? Can be a very troubling, troubling, troubling path. Any sin you find yourself in, why are you committing that sin? Now you can blame it on natural depravity, but God could take away that desire. God could soften your heart. God could convict you so that you never commit the sin in the first place or again. Okay, does it get any better? Verse 21, does this get any better? Does Paul at any point, does he start backing up going, no, you're misunderstanding me, guys. No, 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 no. No, the reason you're being blamed is because of what you're doing. No, does he, does he back up at any point here? He keeps putting the, the responsibility on whom? God. In fact, what does he say in the next verse? Hath not the... Keep that in mind, because which, which chapter are we at in Jeremiah? No, we're in chapter 18. And 18 all, is all about what? Just go, Someone go look at Jeremiah 18. Just skim it real quick if you haven't read it. Just look at it real quick. Okay, it's about the potter. Okay, you see, you see why, why we're in, Jer- why in Romans? I'm not, you know, I'm not making up stuff here. I have a method to my madness here. Okay, all right? All right. Hath not the potter power over the clay? Of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. Okay, immediately you should start hyperventilating. You should, get, you should just start panicking. And you should be like, this book is so messed up. This book is so messed up. This is some psychologically scarring material right here, okay? People, people want to talk about dangerous books in a library. I'm telling you, this may be the most psychologically scarring thing in the world because what did this just, what has just been, what claim has just been made here? 
He's taking, he's going to make two people out of the same lump. One's going to be for honor. Now, put that back in the context. See, typically when we preach this, we preach this in a very theoretical way, right? We preach it in a theoretical way, and then everybody kind of gets a little nervous in the Reform world, and then the pastor will simply say, look, none of us deserves it. So the fact that he would save anyone is a testimony to his grace, and everybody says, amen. And we all clap, and we all say, is it time for the buffet at, you know, Golden Corral, right? And everybody wants to go home and have lunch, and nobody gives it any thought because it's very theoretical. Now, step back into the pages of Jeremiah. Those are human beings. Those are real people with families. These families are being destroyed. They're going to be slaughtered. And why are they going to be slaughtered? Because some of them were made for and some for dishonor. Oh, let's read the, I mean, I, I, I want to make sure everyone knows. I'm not making this up, right? Hath not the potter power over the clay? Who's the potter? God. Who is the clay? Humans. Now, the only hope you could, the only thing you could possibly do with this theoretically, the only thing you could possibly do, like from a textual standpoint, is do what? What could you possibly do with verse this section to possibly alleviate some philosophical problems? What could you possibly do here to alleviate some of this and help yourself feel better? What, what, what's, what, what does this text possibly offer you as a way to limit the damage of this or the psychological scarring of this. Okay. 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 I don't know if that helps. There's one thing that you could possibly do with this text that could just, uh, just what, we could wash our hands of it. We'd be like, it doesn't even have to, uh, anything to do with us. It's aimed towards Israel. This is all about how God worked with Israel and why we see this crazy stuff that's happened. Now, the reason you could possibly do that is for what reason? What would be the textual justification for doing so? Clearly, he's talking about Israel, right? Not only that, he brings up the potter, which is in Jeremiah chapter 18, which is clearly about Israel. That's the only way to possibly get around this, right? Hey, the, he, this is how God has been working with Israel, right? So many of them are going to be destroyed, right? They suffered and they destroyed, but ultimately, from that same lump from Israel, remember he already made the distinction that not all Israel are Israel, right? He kind of already made this kind of weird distinction. Clearly, Israel is the focus here. I don't think there's any way to get around this. I'm not, I'm not saying this is perfect. I'm just throwing out a hypothetical 
hypotheses here that you can just struggle with. It doesn't fix everything, but then you can say, well, why did all of them suffer? Well, they were fit for destruction. Why were they fit for destruction? Because God demonstrates through them and their destruction the futility of living under the law. But there will come a time that all Israel will be saved. From that same lump, he will then save those who are for honor because they are going to be those who are saved under the new covenant. I'm not saying it's perfect. Because that, then that would leave all, all kinds of questions and say, well, then how does it work for us, Right? Oh, well, hang on. I'm just, I'm, I'm throwing my hypothesis here. We, we got to go through the text and test it, right? I'm trying to see if that possibly works, right? You got to let me finish the section, right? That would, that would help us, right? In theory? Now, it wouldn't, fit, it, it would leave us with what question? I was trying to set this up. What about us, right? So then how do we fit in? Does the same system work for us? Or are we exempt? If we're exempt from it, in some ways, I'd be like, whoo, Okay, that, that at least gets us out of that, but I don't know how it works for us. But let's keep reading. Stacey already pointed it out, but let's keep reading. So where did we stop? Well, okay, that's a, that's a pause. You could already start throwing that out. Well, wait a minute. Pharaoh is not a part of this situation, but Pharaoh was being used in regards to them. So maybe, I don't know, but let's just keep reading and see if, if it's all going to fall apart. All right, next verse. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath afore prepared unto glory. Even us, whom he hath called, not only of the Jews only, but also of the... Now the Gentiles get brought into this. So now, wait a minute, how does this work? What do you think think he's saying here? Let's read this, uh, let's look at verse 24 in a number of translations. We're going to run out of time. Okay, we still got a little time. Let's look at a number of translations and see what we come up with, right? I'm going to start with the one I have here. Let's see if we can figure this one out, right? Here we go. Verse 24. All right, 23, and what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on the objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory? On us, the ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Now, this seems to be implying that, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why, maybe God have some fit for destruction so that, as, he, as it says in this translation, where did I just put the translation? As it says, and Gentile are vessels of honor. But there would also then, by logic, there would be those who would be vessels of destruction. So, right. There you go. Yeah, to show his wrath, he has instruments fit for destruction and to show his mercy he has the instruments fit for or to show his mercy he has the instruments fit for honor right but it seems to include both whom 
Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles. All right, and then what's the next verse? 25. As he saith also in... Okay, which book is he referencing here? King James has O.C., Hosea, right? Okay, Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which were, was not beloved. Now, that seems to be a reference to whom? That seems to be a reference to the Gentiles, right? And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto me, you are not my people, they, they shall they be called the children of the living God. Then Isaiah also cried concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, as a remnant, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And then he talks, he goes on, we could just continue reading. As Isaiah said, behold, except the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and been made like unto Gomorrah. What should we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even to the righteousness which is of faith. Now he's really bringing, he's talking about, it's almost like, now I got to be careful here, but it almost feels like in some ways that he's saying, hey, the Gentiles... Now we're going to be the vessels of honor, right? So that God will be mercy. But he's made it clear he's not just referencing the Gentiles, but he's referencing a people, right? He's referencing a people that, um, hopefully we didn't lose connection. Hopefully not. Okay. I think we lost connection on one of the apps. All right. But um, he, he definitely seems to be implying that there are vessels fit for destruction. And what is their purpose? Show God's wrath. There are vessels fit for honor. What are they there to do? Show his mercy. Show his mercy. And then verse 31. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Yeah, you know why they haven't attained to the law of righteousness? (laughs) Because you don't get it by following the law. All right. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as, that, as were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. What could they not obtain by works? Righteousness. How is it obtained? By faith. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. The, well, why is he a stumbling block? Who's the stumbling block? It's Christ. Why is it a stumbling block to the Jews? Because they think they got to do something. Right? And Christ says it is, I'm going to do it, and they can't handle that because they're still trying to obtain righteousness by what they do. Anyone who tries to obtain righteousness by what they do, well, is going to be destroyed. But this sets up the entire situation, though, that how does it work? God is the one who's at work. God's the one doing it. So when you go back to Jeremiah, it raises serious questions, does it not? All these people being destroyed, they are then by definition, they would be what? Vessels fit for destruction. And those who will ultimately be saved are vessels fit for honor. And what's the distinguishing mark between the two? 
Who makes the distinguishing mark? God. God's election. Not based off their will, their works, or their running, or anything they attempt to do. And I don't have an easy answer for any of that. I don't know what to say other than I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to say. I mean, it, it, but it at least, I'm not saying it answers it, but at least it helps us. Put it this way. The New Testament confirms the very hard questions I'm raising in Jeremiah. The reason I'm raising those hard questions is because any person reading it should have those questions. should be like, this makes no sense. God keeps telling them to do something that they can't do and they won't do. Why do they why do they keep why do they keep having these problems? Well, they keep having these problems because they are vessels fit for destruction and there's no easy answer for that. All right. Well, we'll, we'll pray and then we'll see what we can do in the next hour. All right. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, these are absolutely impossible truths to even wrap our minds around. They're beyond our comprehension. If we're even remotely honest with ourselves, it feels not right. It feels unfair. It feels not righteous in any way, shape, or form. Help us, in spite of our feelings, and try to understand that this is not based off what we feel, but based off the revelation you've given us in your word. Help us somehow submit to this revelation, no matter how disturbing it may feel. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,